You're listening to CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, and this is Speaking for Change. I'm Kike Roach. For the past six years, I've been the Unifor National Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Toronto Metropolitan University. The mandate of the chair is to create a hub of interaction between social justice activists and the academic community. In 2011, Winnie Ng and Salman Khan started Social Justice Week, and it's since continued under my stewardship. Every year, it has brought together TMU students, staff, faculty, and the broader community to raise awareness and inspire action. Over the years, we've hosted dozens of notable speakers, centered essential conversations, and encouraged and supported countless students to become more engaged in their communities. The fall of 2022 marked the final edition of Social Justice Week. A dozen years of events has left us a valuable archive of recordings touching on issues that remain extremely relevant today. So we wanted to share some of them with you. Speaking for Change is a weekly series of recordings from the past decade-plus of Social Justice Week, a space to reflect on and celebrate the work of progressive changemakers. This episode presents a keynote talk by Dr. Cindy Blackstock from Social Justice Week 2013 called Truth-Telling and Actions. Dr. Cindy Blackstock is a member of the Gitscan First Nation with over 25 years of social work experience in child protection and Indigenous children's rights. She is currently Executive Director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada and a professor in McGill's School of Social Work. In this talk, Dr. Blackstock details the ways in which governmental policies and the law have been systematically used to create and perpetuate deep-seated inequalities that harm the lives of First Nations children. Eliminating these entrenched forms of discrimination requires sustained pressure from Canadians. Dr. Blackstock busts common myths and offers advice to Canadians on how to move forward and become part of the solution. So I hear there's an election on October 19th. But I want to take a vote tonight. I want to take a vote tonight to end the apartheid that has been happening in this country for 148 years. I want to take a vote tonight where we vanquish our scaredy cat values and we finally stand up for the fairness that's supposed to be the foundation of this country. And we don't overcome difference, we respect it and we celebrate it. But where did these fences come from? When I think back to all of our traditional stories, there were never the fences. Where did they come from? What does it mean for how we got here? How did we become a country, a people, really, that decides that racial discrimination against little kids is okay? Does it have something to do with the fences? Maybe it has everything to do with the fences. You know, we look back at the greatest human rights struggles of our time, and there's something really important to understand about them. And that is that they were all legal in Canada when they happened. The Chinese head tax, the internment of Japanese Canadians, 
the turning back of Jewish persons to face the horrors of the Holocaust. This barbaric act that they want to pass on cultural practices. It has all been made possible because the people did not stand up. We did not know how to stand on guard for our values. And so they let us violate the most sacred, not of Canadian values, but of human values, of what it means to be a person. In whatever your teaching is, it was never okay to hurt kids. It really wasn't. Martin Luther King, you know about him. You also know that just this past year they took down the Confederate flag. But I would say the racial discrimination that First Nations children and their families experience is our Confederate flag. And we don't just fly it on the legislatures. We allow those legislatures, the provincial and the federal legislatures, to provide acts and policies that give them life. But Martin Luther King said it this way in 1963. He said, our nation was born in genocide. You see, for those who have read the Declaration of the Independence in the United States, in Article 2 it includes a passage, the merciless Indian savages. The merciless Indian savages right in the birth certificate of the United States. And we have that here too. We have that here too right in the birth certificate of Canada. When it embraced the doctrine that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race. Moreover, we elevated that tragic experience into a noble crusade. And that's when racism becomes most dangerous, when it becomes benevolent and righteous. We're not going to throw more money at these people. They don't know how to manage their own money. You've heard it haven't you? Indeed, even today, we have not permitted ourselves to reject or feel remorse for the shameful episode. Our literature, our films, our drama, our folklore, all exalted. And so do the Canadian laws. So honored uh, that Regional Chief Day is here today, one of the great First Nations chiefs from across this country who have pointed to these injustices that have existed in this country for so long. Like the recent passage of the First Nations Accountability Act. We have to rise these things out so that we can see them laid bare as acts of racism. It's not that there aren't First Nations people who mismanage their money, of course there are. But per capita, there is more criminality in the Prime Minister's office than there is on any reserve. need to be held accountable for when they do breaches of the law, but it is not a cultural characteristic and it should never be used as a guise to discriminate against people, to make them less, to make them into that savage, to feed into that narrative. I wish Martin Luther King were here today. I wonder what he would say about all of us and the condition we're in in this country. Would he be proud of us? Or would he be shaking his head and wondering why this dream of equity and fairness didn't come true? 
This is Canada's birth certificate. Most of you have never seen this document. When it was handed to me, my hands shook. It's signed by a man named Duncan Campbell Scott. Some of you learned about him in English literature, didn't you? One of the Confederate poets. He was also the acting superintendent of Indian Affairs when he signed this letter in 1895. It is written to the Department of Justice, and he's asking for a warrant to remove First Nations children and place them in residential schools, not only for the purposes of education, but for the purposes of they are not being properly cared for at home. That idea of the civilized and the savage, that we were going to take these savage children and we were going to put them somewhere better. Behind this letter is a typewritten form where there is the name of a child in a blank. And every time I hold that piece of paper, all the faces of the hundreds of thousands of children who would go to these places, their faces and their spirits somehow pass through that paper. And it makes us need to ask the question of whether we actually put them somewhere better. You know, an Australian woman, an Aboriginal Australian woman, she said this to me. She said, the day they removed me from my family, they promised me a better life. And they didn't deliver. They didn't deliver. In fact, they came far from delivering, right? As we know, in the residential schools, hundreds of thousands of kids died there. And what Canadians often do is they say it was, well, it's not fair to judge people of, like Duncan Campbell Scott by today's values, right? Not fair. Somehow this all going to be explained because people back then didn't know any better. But then what do you do about Dr. Bryce? So Dr. Bryce uh, was born in Mount Pleasant, Ontario, not far from the Haudenosaunee territory. And he was the first chief medical health officer here in Ontario. He was president of the American Public Health Association, and he was an expert in tuberculosis. And when he was 51, he was recruited by the Department of Aboriginal Affairs to go out and study the health of children in residential schools. So he goes out and he studies the health of the kids. And he comes back absolutely appalled. And uh, this is Dr. Bryce on the side. And you can see that he, what he found the death rates were in a school. All from tuberculosis. He famously said, medical science knows just what to do. They knew what to do to save these children's lives. Now, by some accident, his report gets leaked to the Ottawa Citizen, which at that time was the e evening citizen in 1907. So it's out in front of the public, the politicians and everyone is reading it, and it's on the front page. And it says, suffice it to say, that of the 1,537 pupils reported upon, 25% are dead of the one school. And with the accurate estimate, 69% of ex-pupils are dead. For every 10 kids who went into the school, seven never left. Now, how did the government respond to Dr. Bryce? He's a top expert. It would have cost ten dollars to $15,000 to save those children's lives in Ontario and Quebec. Duncan Campbell Scott said it cost too much money. 
And when Bryce kept on pushing on the gas pedal to change, worried about how many days are passing with these children's lives going untreated, Duncan Campbell Scott and the Canadian government started to try and disparage him. And eventually they push him out of his position. And what does Dr. Bryce do? In 1922, he walks past the war memorial into a publishing house and he publishes a work called A National Crime. Samuel Hume Blake, a lawyer at that time, said that in that Canada fails to obviate the preventable causes of death that brings itself into unpleasant nearness with manslaughter. And where was the founder of this university? Well, he was an, considered an expert in education, but he was a big supporter of residential schools. And there were people like Bryce that were raising the alarm that children were dying there, and he still supported the residential schools. So we can see that this idea, this pervasive narrative of the civilized and the savage overcomes even the most obvious of facts. Back then, it was not okay for kids to die knowingly. Even the Ottawa citizen knew that. That's why it's on the front page. Just as we know now that it's not okay for so many First Nations children to be denied a proper education. Just as we know now that it should raise all kinds of alarm bells that seven young kids die in Thunder Bay because they have to go away from school. This is the same alarm bells and we are still largely silent. So this is, uh, this is Duncan Campbell Scott and when uh, right around the time that uh, Dr. Bryce is out shopping his report to all the members of parliament, Duncan Campbell Scott decides let's make the whole regime mandatory for all the kids. We're going to make it mandatory to remove all these children and place them in these places. So that was the government's response, was not to correct the harm, it was actually to make the harm even more potent for these children, right? So we need to understand that about the government. The government, there are good people within government, but the government as a whole is not a moral or logical or animal, right? That's why it does so many crazy things in history. That's why it needs a good democratic people who know when to speak out. That's why we have to be morally courageous. And there we have the died so dying. We're gonna have, uh, we're gonna, going to be celebrating Remembrance Day in a few days. It's important that we honor the veterans. But it's also important for you to take this fact that the ch chances of dying in a residential school were higher than dying in the Second World War. They were higher, and they were talking about children, little kids. And who remembers them in the Canadian psyche, right? You know, uh, a great elder told me that when you do something wrong, your first duty is not to apologize. It's actually to learn what you did wrong, right? And you need to learn, you don't get to define the wrong as the person who did the wrong, right? You gotta listen to the people who were harmed. You gotta understand from their perspective what it was that was wrong. And it's only in that learning process do you realize that you, and getting that knowledge so you don't do it again. In 2008, Stephen Harper apologized for the residential schools. And the day before that, I was actually at Dr. Bryce's grave in Beechwood Cemetery. 
You see, I had gone there with a bunch of brightly colored daisies to thank him for having the moral courage to have stood up for those kids. And I promised him I would be back when the kids won the biggest legal case ever brought against the Canadian government for racial discrimination. Because as Sheila Fraser has told us, and yet we haven't quite heard it, not in our hearts anyway. Maybe we heard it on the news, but we haven't heard it in our hearts. You see that First Nations kids on reserve get less money than everybody else. It goes against that stereotype that they actually get more, right? We've all heard it, all the perks you get with being First Nations, right? You know? I'm still waiting for my own personal pack, perk package as a status Indian. I've never got it yet, right? So I figure it, maybe at 60 or something I get it. Maybe it comes under the retirement tree. But what you do get is this discriminatory funding. You see, the federal government requires as a matter of policy that provincial laws apply on reserve. That in itself is controversial because there's very little, if any, evidence that those laws actually are better for the kids. It's again that savage, civilized types of notion. But nonetheless, these provincial laws apply, but the federal government funds it on reserve, whereas the provinces fund it for everybody else. And you need only look at Sheila Fraser or Michael Ferguson or all the Auditor Generals right back to the early 1900s to know this. They have always given those kids laughs across every area of experience. Child welfare, health, water, housing. We have got one in six First Nations that don't even have clean water to drink in this country, this country, right? We, don't, we are worried about digging wells in Africa, and we should be, but we should be digging wells here, you know? This inequity is not just something that happens in words. It happens in the lives of children. One non-Aboriginal girl that I worked with, she said, discrimination is when the government doesn't think you're worth the money. I want you to think about it for a moment if you're one of those children that's not worth the money or the parent of a child who's not worth the money. And I also want you to think of this. You'll be judged as if you're actually getting more. I'm being so generous to you as a government and you're still not pulling up your socks. Why aren't more of your kids graduating? Why aren't they coming to places like Ryerson? You know? I say to the presidents of the universities and administrators, including my own university, we have got to stop this nonsense of trying to recruit more Aboriginal students. We have to deal with the discrimination that happens in kindergarten that stops those students from having a proper opportunity of walking in the doors of places like this. We have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We've heard those stories. Some of us have lived those stories of those children, the ones who died there physically. Some of us died there emotionally. Some of us can never leave. And some of us, despite everything, have overcome it with grace and eloquence. But there's a reason why the number one call for action for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is about kids. And why is it about child welfare of all things? 
Why would they recommend child welfare as their number one concern? Because there are more First Nations children in child welfare care today than at the height of residential schools by a factor of three. One of the documents that was presented in the court case, the one I was talking to Dr. Bryce about, was this Excel spreadsheet. I hate Excel, even at the best of times. But this one took my breath away, you see? You can think of the overrepresentation. Isn't that an easy word to say? We say it all the time, overrepresentation in the justice system, overrepresentation amongst poor health outcomes, overrepresentation in child welfare. It's 12 times more likely if you're going to, if First Nations kid to be in child welfare care than other kids. Or you can think about it the way you would have thought about it as a child, or the way that your kids will think about it. They don't say I'm 12 times more likely to be in foster care. They'll say, how many more sleeps till I see my mom? When do I get to go see my dog? Is my grandpa coming to visit? How many more sleeps? This Excel spreadsheet counted up the number of nights First Nations children have spent away from their families in foster care, on reserve only, between 1989 and 2012. It excludes data for Ontario for 2011, so it's an undercount. And if you add up all of those nights, it's over 66 million nights, or 187,000 years of childhood. For every day, this discrimination, this underfunding of child welfare, which is an underfunding of the ability of families to care for these kids safely on the same terms as other people can, it clocks up 9,000 nights. And it hasn't even been mentioned in the federal election debate not even on the radar screen. And then there's a sense too that when you see First Nations people like myself out there on the media or you see people at roadblocks, it's like, why didn't they just work with the government first, right? Well, you know, they should just sit down. And I remember this one leader from another international country, lovely man, but he said, Cindy, you and the children should just go have tea with Prime Minister Harper. It would all work out. Well, I did have lots of tea. <laughs> uh, I worked, was honored to work with so many great people, both within government and outside of government. For over 10 years, we documented the inequalities in child welfare for, in two separate reports. Um, the second one came out in 2005. It was authored by 20 leading experts, including five economists. We had taxied it down to the last dime of the inequality that these kids are getting and the result of them going into child welfare care. Both occasions, the federal government applauded the work because they were around the table at the time. But they didn't do anything about it. You know, and that's when the penny finally dropped. That's when the question of moral courage comes up. How many childhoods are we going to spend at those negotiating tables? I was there for 10 years. A baby born that first day was now 10 years old. How much longer do you sit there hoping they're going to do the right thing? Well, we decided that we had to take action. And I am so grateful to an elder who taught me one of my biggest life lessons. He said, when you build a caring society, he said, never fall in love with a caring society. Never fall in love with your business card or your degree. Don't fall in love with it. Only fall in love with the children. Because if you fall in love with them, 
There may come a time when you have to sacrifice both those things for them. So with $50,000 in the bank, getting 40% of our funding from the federal government, the only Aboriginal organization working for kids in the country, in 2007, we decided that we would take the federal government to court in partnership with the Assembly of First Nations. And what we were alleging is that the government of Canada, your government, the one you're going to vote for on the 19th, is racially discriminating against 163,000 children in this country by providing flawed and inequitable levels of child welfare. Within 30 days, all of our federal government money was cut. And we've received nothing from the provinces either. So we're the only national organization that's Aboriginal receives zero dollars from the provincial government. But somehow I always believe we're going to be okay, despite all logic to the contrary. After all, we just took it on the biggest law firm in the country. But I believe what the elder was talking about, about the power of spirit. And so within two weeks of filing that case, I got a letter. It said, Dear Cindy, here's some M-U-N-Y for the kids, love Ella and inside was $1.67 from her piggy bank. Mm. To this very day, children, Canadian children, are the largest funders of the Caring Society. <laughs> and they don't just show up at the case or, or, make, or go have lemonade slants, they show up. And not just one or two of them, and not just First Nations kids. You see, non-Aboriginal children are really the very best teachers of reconciliation. They could teach all the rest of the country because all children understand instinctually love and fairness. Because we spend so much time talking to them about that. And they don't make a bunch of baffle gab excuses for this type of discrimination. It is wrong. And they're not going to strike all kinds of logic committees or wring their hands about what to do about it. They're actually going to do something about it, right? So these are the children actually in federal court, and they're listening to Sarah argue the case actually that day. You know what the kids say about this case? They can't believe it. They say, where are all the adults? Where is everybody? We understand this is wrong. We're here. Where is everybody? That's what they ask. See, they're even outside, and they're writing valentines to the prime minister because they understand that he can make the change. He, in one swoop, could end this racial discrimination. But first, he's going to have to admit it that it's happening, and second of all, he's going to have to admit that there are solutions to it and he could implement it tomorrow. This is not a complex matter. Treating kids fairly is not complex. Perpetuating a regime of racial discrimination is. That's what's complex about it. Here's some of the evidence. You want to see some of the evidence the kids heard? I'm just going to show you some of the federal government's own documents. So we're going to show you any of the documents we got. The first thing I'll tell you, though, is that the federal government had an expert witness, KPMG, the accounting firm. I know that they're in some trouble right now. But they did do a review of our calculations of the shortfalls. They did a forensic audit of it with the hope that they could actually discount it. And what they did is they came within 0.025% of our calculations of the shortfalls. So they actually agreed with our side of the case. So they never called KPMG as an expert witness. 
and we filed that report that they paid some $300,000 for on our side of the case, right? So things already, from an expert witness point of view, are not going in uh, well for the government. But these are some of their own documents. This is a document they never wanted Canadians to see. Because they're out there telling you about all the good stuff they're doing for First Nations kids, right? We love Aboriginal kids. Think about all the programs we're doing, right? And uh, this is a document written by Health Canada and Aboriginal Affairs. And it has a whole series of examples of where First Nations children are treated differently. And by differently, I don't mean better. And I don't even mean the same. They're denied services because of their race. So here we have a child who is, uh, has, a, has a disability, requires a wheelchair, a lift, and a stroller. If that child in this jurisdiction, according to them, had these issues, they would get all those supplies right away. No problem. Doctor's note. But that same child's First Nations, you get one of those items every five years. And the lift has to be self-installed. Because you're First Nations. Because you're one of those kids who the government says is not worth the money. Now, this is 2007. This is the government of Canada's own website. This is shortly after we filed the case. Late into the evening, I'm on the website, and I find this fact sheet they have up there about First Nations Child and Family Services. You see, they let First Nations operate the program um, in the form of these agencies. Now, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, this is perfect. They actually admit that they're discriminating, right? That their, their funding formula is outdated, that we can't provide the same range of statutory services on reserve, that that's resulting in increases, you see that last line, growing numbers of children in care. So I do screenshot and print it. We file it as evidence in the tribunal. And what does the government do? They take it down from their website, right? But you can call me, I've got copies. Now, I think these are the documents every taxpayer should get, you know, is the secret documents. We don't want the ones that they're putting up on the website. That's a bunch of poppycock in most cases, right? We want the secret documents. What are they really thinking? And this document is actually a PowerPoint where the internal Aboriginal Affairs people are calculating the shortfall in First Nations Child Welfare funding. And uh, you can see there that they think it's about $420 million, right? This is their own estimate. And it's a credit, actually. And I want to put a little shout out for public servants, because sometimes they get dumped on, is that there are people inside telling the truth. But they don't get listened to, and the whole system rewards conformity, right? That's why we get the bad governments we get. And we can see this isn't an, just an isolated PowerPoint. This is a different one that shows you that same rough figure, right? About $500 million shortfall. That these are not at the lower levels of the department, so they can't say it's a second-year law clerk who did this. This is the deputy minister level and the assistant deputy minister level. So these are the top levels of the department. And how are they dealing with these shortfalls? Well, they will publicly tell you that they're actually funding education okay that income assistance is about fair. Um, that's what they publicly say, but this PowerPoint shows you something quite completely different. It acknowledges that the department knows it's not funding education, social assistance, child welfare at equitable levels, doesn't it? And it says, how are we dealing with that? We're not going to the surplus budget. 
We're going to take money out of the water budget. We're going to take money out of the budget, the infrastructure budget that covers for building new schools. We're going to take it out of that same budget that's supposed to be about getting rid of black mold contamination in housing. And they're not just taking a little bit, they're taking billions of dollars out, right? So that's shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, because the leading reason why First Nations children go into child welfare care is poverty, poor housing, and substance misuse related to trauma. So if you are deepening the housing crisis, you're not really helping those kids, are you, right? It doesn't make any sense. Why not go to the surplus budget? And it makes you wonder, is this how we're getting the surplus budget? Yeah. How good do you feel about having your new freeway paid for with this? Most Canadians would be appalled and horrified, right? They should be, because this is what's happening in our country. And what are the consequences of doing it? Is it just bar graphs? This is a uh, story some of you would have heard at last year in Saskatchewan. There is a fire in a First Nations community. First Nations children are 10 times more likely to die in fires than non-Aboriginal people are because of the inadequate construction of homes and fire, fire, adequate fire protection. So there's a fire in the First Nation. There is a non-Aboriginal fire department that was contracted to deliver that service. The First Nation fell behind in their bills. I think it was $1,300. People will correct me if I'm wrong. Is that roughly right? I think it's $1,300. So the fire alarm goes off at the fire department. The fire chief picks up the alarm. But then he says, hold on, I'm not getting the fire engine out. This is the group that owes me that 1300 bucks. So two children die in the fire. On the headlines of the national paper was, well, the, the First Nations want fire protection. They should have paid that $1,300. And it was all over Twitter. So I, I, I try to ignore some of this stuff sometimes, but sometimes I can't help myself. And so I retweeted back to this one guy. And I said, look, when I called 911 for my non-Aboriginal neighbor, they didn't say, did he pay his taxes? <laughs> they asked what the emergency was, and they went out and helped him. Right? This is racial discrimination at several levels. It's racial discrimination by the federal government not providing adequate housing and fire protection. And it's racial discrimination because of how we turned what is clearly a wrong into a right. That savage, civilized narrative again. Now, the government has quite an uphill case to make in this, this child welfare case. This is from their final written submissions. How are they going to explain their own documents, right? So it's one thing to say, well, we don't believe Cindy Blackstock because she doesn't know what she's talking about, which is really what they said. They said, I, was, I think they put it that I was really nice and passionate, um, but really it's been a long time. She doesn't really know very much. <laughs> ah, that might be true. I'm happy to accept that because I think their own people know quite a bit. So let's turn to that. So this is their thing, and I really recommend you read all of them on I Am a Witness. The complainants rely on an assortment of internal government documents, which they assert are admissible for the truth of their contents, as either public documents or admissions against interest by the respondent. We say this proves our case, that the children are being racially discriminated against. 
No, says the federal government. This overshoots the mark. These are personal views of employees at a particular period of time. Who thinks that's right? There's two parts to this, right? Number one, that they're personal opinions. But they brought no evidence that these are personal opinions. And number two is that they're wrong. Even if they are personal opinions, that's still okay. You gotta say that they're wrong. And they never brought one piece of evidence to show that they're wrong. They did say, however, that they're broke. We can't really afford this. You know, we're doing what we can for First Nations kids. You can't accept equality all in one, one whack. You gotta be practical. Be patient with us, right? We have drank that toxic narrative as First Nations even. We're thankful if they deal with inequality in education, but those same kids can't get a clean glass of water. Is that real equality? What about the non-Aboriginal community? If you are getting equality only in one area of your life, but discriminated in all other areas, is that equality? See, equality isn't an aspiration. It's the floor for everybody, isn't it? So I don't think we should be patient in waiting for the government to get their act together. As I, another little girl said to me, she said, childhood does not wait around for politicians to get their act together. Right? Doesn't. And besides, we're wealthy. We've got lots of money. This is the Kids' Rights Index. It ranks countries internationally and in the world for how well they're doing to kids, for kids proportionate to their wealth. So we would expect the wealthiest countries, for example, the United States, should really be at the top of the list. Uh, Canada is the 11th largest in the World Bank rankings on GDP. We should be 11 or better, right? We are 79th in the world. And that's for all children. We dropped 19 places in two years. When this first came out, we were 60th in the world, and I thought that was bad, but now we're down at 79th. Our economy's doing seven times better than this generation of children is. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a freight train towards a third world economy, right? If you are not investing in children, you are setting the seeds for poor economic development down the road. Ask any legitimate scholar in the area and they'll tell you. But this is also a signal of how our morality has shifted. We're not even prepared to put kids first. We're really not. Not when the chips are down, not when it matters in the wallet, in the public wallet. Kids are really the last ones at the plate, right? Now, what about this? I walked into the room and I actually saw Stephen Harper's picture there, and I thought maybe he wants to keep a better eye on Pam and I, huh? Um, remember Dr. Bryce, how when he came out with the truth, their position was to retaliate. When we filed this case, they tried to get rid of it on legal technicalities. When they were unsuccessful at doing that after spending $3 million in six years, they turned to illegal strategies, and they have been found to have broken the law on three occasions in the exercise of this case. They deployed 189 different public servants to follow me around. And you found me, and you didn't have to follow me around. <laughs> right? And the idea was to find other motives for filing that child welfare case. Now, what do you do about that stuff? right, when it happens to you. A lot of people are afraid, what do you do if your funding gets cut or if they come for you? 
I say expect them to come for you. And when they do, respond with love and light. Do not retaliate, but shine a bright light on their behavior. And so we amended the complaint at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to include a complaint that the Canadian government had retaliated against me. And in June, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal released the decision finding that the Canadian government had willfully and recklessly retaliated against me and awarded me $20,000, which I am donating to children's charities. Because this isn't about the money, this is about the freedom we're supposed to have in this country, right? It's about the freedom, and it's also a reminder, why are they coming after me so strongly if what they're doing is okay? Because I am not the real victim, and I am definitely not the person with the real courage. The real courage are those parents and those children who are living with this racial discrimination every day and trying to do so with dignity and with courage. So what is reconciliation? Is it just reading a TRC report? Who here has a bookmark in your hand? Hold it up. You are all going to go on those websites and you're going to sign up. It takes under two minutes and it's completely free. And you're going to tell those kids that you're standing with them. And you're going to send a message on October 19th that the era of racial discrimination in this country is over. Because to me, reconciliation means not saying sorry twice. And if we really want to get past this fence, this fence that divides us, we really need to stop that racial discrimination. We really need to stop it. Because if we don't, this fence is going to get higher. And we won't even see each other anymore. And you know what happens when we can't see each other anymore? We can't see our own values anymore either. We lose ourselves as a people. So on October 19th, you vote to end it. And on October 20th, if they haven't done it, you continue to do what the kids are doing. You show up, you write letters, you don't stop, and you make sure that this, in your generation, in these children's childhoods, that they know that there's a country of people out there that will do what the government is not willing to do. And that is really, truly, be Canadians. Thank you very much. That was Professor Cindy Blackstock speaking at the event Truth Telling and Actions from Social Justice Week 2013. Thanks for listening to Speaking for Change on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, a retrospective on Social Justice Week programming at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every week this semester, we're highlighting a talk or panel from the past 12 years of Social Justice Weeks. Tune in at the same time next week for a new episode. I'm your host, Kike Roach. Thanks for listening. <laughs>